Bible in the pew there in front of you. You can find this on page 329. 2 Kings chapter 22. Josiah and the Word and the satisfaction of God. Let's begin this time in the Word in prayer. Fathers, we have just sung, we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ through your word. You give us ears to hear the sweetness of your promises, the seriousness of sin, the richness of your word, that you would give us hearts that are believing, not unbelieving. You give us hearts that look to Christ as the satisfaction of your righteousness, the satisfaction of your wrath in his death, the satisfaction and fulfillment of your promises and your word. And that for all the days of our life, we would cling to your word, feast on your word, proclaim your word, hope in your word that this church, this body would be built upon the foundation of your truth and your Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we ask now that you would come in your spirit and exalt your name through the teaching and preaching of your word in Christ's name. Amen. As we approach this season of feasting on physical food, I thought it'd be worth thinking about food. In particular, how eagerly, how devotedly we all typically interact with food when you think about it. How often we think about food. How often we dwell on food. How hard we work at our jobs to make money to buy food. Just think about how many hours we spend a week together shopping for food. Organizing food, storing food then preparing food, then eating food, then digesting food, only to begin thinking about food again. The thing about how much of our day is organized around meals, that if an alien that had no need for food were to just arrive at our planet and just observe our way of life, would that alien not conclude, wow, you love food. Your life is organized around food. And then I wonder, could that same conclusion be made about how we as Christians relate to the Word of God? Could that same alien look at the church, look at Christians and go, wow, you love the Word of God. You think about it constantly. You dwell on it. You organize your life around it. You talk about it. God led Israel into the wilderness, into a place without food, and then fed them with manna from heaven in order to make them understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. Moses is going to tell us through the word of God at the end of his life that the word of God is not an empty word. Behold, it is your life. That's how he'll put it. Your life depends on this. David calls the words of God more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Psalm 19. The psalmist will call the word of God a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. He will call the testimonies of God his counselors. That he goes to the word of God for counsel, for help, And Jesus will say to his father, your word is truth. John 17, 17. He's going to pray, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in your word. So we have to begin by asking ourselves the questions, do we believe this about the word of God? And do we believe it? Because if we truly long for a revival in our land and reformation in our churches and even transformation in our souls, then we must begin with the word of God. 
We must begin with the God who has spoken. So the Lord's going to use Ezra mightily for this reason. Listen to this in Ezra 7. Because he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's why God's going to use him. Because Ezra's going to set his heart to study the word of God. But not just study it, to do it. To practice it. And not just practice it, but then to teach it. To declare it. To proclaim it to all who would listen. That through his spoken word, God created the world. Just think about that. He created the world through his spoken word. Through his written word, he saves souls. He declares the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. Through his word, he transforms lives. Through his word, he reforms whole communities and churches. And so our devotion to the word of God does not save us. But his word does save us. The amount of time we spend in the word of God will not save us. But the one who is announced through the word of God will save us. And so our delight in Scripture does not satisfy the wrath of God. It does, however, lead us to the one who saves us from the wrath of God. Which brings us to the main idea for this morning, that real transformation of human hearts and lives comes through the Word of God, but only to those for whom the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. So the reign of Josiah makes this truth plain that the kind of change the word of God will bring about in his life and even the nation under his rule is miraculous. It's nothing short of spectacular. And we should pray for the Lord to give us his kind of heart for hearing, his kind of heart for believing, his kind of heart for obeying the word of God. And yet his humility, his repentance, his obedience will still not be enough to satisfy the wrath of God. Another king is going to have to come and do that. And so we'll look at two main points this morning, the, the power of the word and the satisfaction of God. Just the power of the word and the satisfaction of God. So notice 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1, where it says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. In verse 2, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That these words summarize the reign of Josiah. Though he was not sinless, he lives by faith. His heart was oriented toward God and desired to please God. According to 2 Chronicles 34.3, he really began to seek the Lord at the age of 16. That he's, from the age of 8, going to be pleasing to God and seeking God. But at 16, you're going to see this great acceleration in his devotion to God. And one of the ways that's going to be shown is in his desire to sort of rebuild, to clean out, to renovate the temple. This temple that had fallen into disrepair, this temple that had become a house of idols, full of idolatry, that at the age of 16, Josiah's going to go, we've got to clean this out. We've got to change this. We've got to restore this place of worship where the people of God can come and serve their God and give glory to their God and sacrifice to their God. But it's going to be most evident in his response to the revealed word of God in the verses to follow, that as those who are cleaning out the temple are cleaning out the temple and they find the word of God, They find the law of the Lord. In verse 8, it says, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds the book of the law, which probably refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, probably centered around Deuteronomy is what he's going to find. And he's going to read it. He's going to give it to Shephan, the secretary, who reads it. And then after reading it, interestingly, he's going to bring it to King Josiah. He's thinking, after he reads this, he goes, okay, the king's going to want to hear this. In verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. It's going to undo him. 
And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahakim the, the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Azahiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. What a reaction. Especially when you think about so many kings before him and how they responded to the word of God. Ahab is going to imprison prophets for speaking God's word in his presence. Amaziah is going to threaten to kill prophets for speaking the word of God to them in his presence. He's going to tell them, shut up. Why should fierce men fall upon you and kill you? That will be their response. So just even now, they know, Shaphan the secretary knows, okay, bring it to this king. He's going to want to hear this. And then when he hears the words, it sends him immediately into mourning, into repentance, into tearing of his robes as an act of utter humiliation. And the conclusion is, how great is the wrath against us? What I love about that is he's not saying that based on circumstances. He's not looking and going, oh, look at the hurricanes, look at the tornadoes, look at how bad the economy is, look at this, how great is God's wrath. How does he conclude that God's wrath is great? The word. He just hears the word and he believes it and he knows how great the wrath of God must be upon us. He looks at his own life, at others. He hears the word and he concludes, woe are we. And then interestingly he says, I want to hear more. (laughs) Go find out what else this Lord has to say to us. Go inquire of him. And so he'll send a group to, to Huldah, a prophetess in Jerusalem at the time, who's the wife of someone who's over the wardrobe. So someone who handles all the wardrobe, his wife is known as a prophetess, and he's like, go find out from her what God thinks about us. How many of us want that conversation? Go send word. I want an honest appraisal from the Lord. An honest word from God about where we stand with him. Verse 15, and she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me They made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. What a word. What are you hoping to hear back from the prophetess? That God would go, oh, come on now. No big deal. You're overreading it. It's not as bad as you think, Josiah. In fact, you're such a nice guy. You're doing all these neat things. I'm just going to, don't worry about the law. Don't worry about my holiness. Don't worry about my wrath. Let's just overlook it. No, what's he going to say? You heard right. (laughs) Josiah, you heard right. There is wrath coming. It won't be quenched because of the idolatry and the unfaithfulness of this land. There are consequences that can't be undone. However, verse 18, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, meaning repentant, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. You've torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you. What a statement. You heard me, I've heard you. You were crushed beneath my word, I'll bend my ear to hear your words, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. So notice how the repentance of Josiah does not remove the cost and the consequences of sin. 
but it does defer the ultimate cost and consequences for him personally. It's important to see. The Lord will spare him the evils about to befall the nation, but also promises he will go to the grave in peace, which I think suggests that he's going to die reconciled to God. Because why would we go to the grave in peace only to know hell thereafter? But rather, I think what we're seeing here is whatever this response to the proclamation of God's word, whether this heart that the Lord gives him, it's a heart of repentance and faith unto God, that God now says, you go tell him there's peace. He's not going to see the judgment, the wrath that's going to come. He's not going to know that. I'm going to spare him. He's going to go to the grave in peace. And so how does that work? How does he get to go to the grave in peace? I'll save those questions. We'll get to it later. Verse 23, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. This is going to be important because you think, what, how could a king respond to that? No, my wrath won't be quenched. I will do all that I said. You're going to be okay, but everything else is going to burn. And why wouldn't he just go, okay, well then, whatever. Let's just keep going. I'm fine. Everybody else isn't. No, he's going to be moved to great action. He's going to call and draw all the leaders of this nation to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord. And with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. So where's he going to start? We're just going to all get together and go to God. Small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. I love that. He's going to hear, it's going to crush him. Now he's not going to have somebody else read it. He's going to go, he's going to read it to everybody. You've got to hear what I've heard. Because again, I think he probably thinks we can save more people. <laughs> if we declare, if, if they would hear what I heard and be crushed beneath what I've been crushed under and turn to the Lord in faith, he will say to them what he said to me. You can go to the grave in peace. And the Lord stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Yeah, that God didn't say, don't worry, just how you, your, your soul's secure. Because of your response and faith, you can go to the grave in peace. And then that doesn't move Josiah just to go back to bed and just sleep the rest of his life or devote himself to his own personal pleasure. He's saying, no, well then we're going to preach this word. <laughs> we're going to proclaim this word. We're going to get everybody together and worship this God who's spoken, and we're going to enter into covenant with him and ask him to transform and to help us keep his commandments and testimonies. It doesn't make him lazy. And in fact, the grace of God through the word of God is going to bring about such transformation in him and through him. He's going to bring about 16 reforms in the nation in the months and years to follow. In verse 4, he's going to take all the vessels of false worship from the temple and it says, burn them outside Jerusalem. This is chapter 23 now. In verse 5, he deposed the priests who the kings of Judah set up for their false worship just going to depose them all there's no sitting down and talking about their future in the kingdom and how to maybe some things to tweak and change no he's going to depose them every one of them and he brought out the asherah from the house of the lord in verse six and he burned it at the brook of kidron and he beat it to dust this was a lesson from moses's sort of revival playbook whenever you find idolatrous you take it you burn it you beat it to dust Verse 7, he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. They built houses for male cult prostitutes in the temple grounds. He's going to break them all down. Verse 8, he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and all these false priests and defiled the high places where the priests made offerings. That you defile God's name will defile these places where it's done. Verse 8, he broke down the high places of the gates. Verse 10, he defiled Topheth, which was an altar in the valley in the son of Hinnom, 
which is where the parents would go to burn their children as an offering. He's going to defile it. Verse 11, he's going to remove the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. He's going to burn the chariots of the sun with fire. Verse 12, he's going to pull down all the false altars in the courts of the Lord. He's going to break them to pieces, and it says, cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. Verse 15, the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption. It was called the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built. He's going all the way back to Solomon. We're going to dig up from the roots. Verse 15, he pulled down and burned, reducing to dust the altar at Bethel that Jeroboam had erected. He's going to go back to Jeroboam. We're going to go to Bethel, and we're going to pull that thing down and reduce it to dust. How often is it repeated? To dust, to dust, to dust. It's a foreshadowing of how wrath works from dust to dust. The wages of sin is death. God's going to go from dust you came to dust you'll go. So here, through Josiah, he's reducing this system of false worship to dust. Verse 16, he dug up the bones of all the false prophets and burned them on the altar and defiled it. Which, if you remember, is exactly what God said would happen through the prophet who spoke against Jeroboam in 1 Kings 13, 2, naming Josiah by name. Remember the prophet in 1 Kings 13 is going to come and announce judgment upon that altar before Jeroboam. And he's actually going to say there's going to be a king that's going to come up and he's going to desecrate this place. He's going to burn it to the ground, reduce it to dust, and Josiah is his name. This is hundreds of years before, and here he is. Verse 19, he, now the tomb of the true prophet, however, we see, that spoke against that altar, Josiah doesn't touch it, but honors it. He knows the true from the false. We're going to dig up the prophets of all these false, or the tombs of all these false prophets, burn their bones on these altars, and then reduce it all to dust. But the tomb of that one, that true prophet, leave it alone. We're going to honor it. Because the Lord knows those who are his. Verse 19, he removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. Verse 12, he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Verse 21, verses 21 through 23, perhaps the most encouraging reform of all, that he's going to lead the nation back to keeping the Passover. It's going to say no such Passover had been cut since the days of the judges who judged Israel. Even before the kings, there wasn't a Passover like this. Or during all the kings of Israel or all the kings of Judah. In other words, he's going to celebrate and lead the whole people in celebrating the redemption of God's people from Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. That that event for him was significant. And we're going to celebrate it like it's never been celebrated before. And so he was defined not just by what he tore down, but also by what he established. And in verse 24, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods. I love that, even into people's houses. Like all of you, you're going to clean house. All the household gods all the idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written. So again, he wasn't just tearing down. He was tearing down to do what? To build up. We're going to remove all this and then we're going to celebrate the Passover. Get rid of all these idols so that we can honor and celebrate the word of God and the word or the God who's given us that word. Verse 25, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. It's quite a statement. There's no king before him like him. We could say, well, what about David? He was a man after God's own heart, and that's true. There was no king like David in that way, but David didn't have to come back from this. David wasn't handed this. 
when he comes to the throne. And so no king was like Josiah that turned so aggressively back to God, that was used by God to turn a whole nation 180 degrees back to God, nor any like him after. So in a day when the nation, even the whole world, was in the sewer, full of idolatry, full of immorality, full of violence, full of false worship, full of injustice. Josiah is going to hear the words of God, believe the words of God, and then act upon the words of God. I love it. He doesn't gripe about the state of the world. It's not where he's going to start. He's not going to start just complaining about how badly his parents raised him. Do you think he could have had that argument? He's not going to just complain about what a wretched situation he's been delivered as a king. How's he supposed to work with all this? He's not going to complain to God about not fixing the nation before he got there or taking all his problems away. No, Scripture says he turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, which is the essence of the law. He understood that that's the guts of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. That the the law can just be boiled down, distilled down to that commandment. And because of it, love your neighbor. So he begins with his own heart, with his heart submitted to God's word no matter what. That's the priceless lesson for all of us, right? Are you upset about your country? Is your marriage in trouble? Is your family suffering and in turmoil? Is your workplace in shambles or your neighborhood or your church or this world? Do you wonder where do you begin? Well, you begin here with you and God in his word. You and God in his word, you on your knees, in prayer, in contrition, in repentance, in dependence, in faith, saying, God, use me. Lord, help me love you. Help me love others. Begin with tearing your clothes and weeping before God. Because there is a principle that I think has always held true in life, and in particular in my marriage, that I can measure the length of an argument by the amount of times it takes me to get to this posture. I can measure it by that. But the amount of time it takes me to get to a place of humility, a place of genuine contrition, a place of genuine love for my wife and desire for reconciliation, a place of genuine sort of care for the name of God and care for my wife, a place where I'm actually repentant of my sin, humble before my God humble before my wife. It doesn't mean that's going to magically change her in that moment. But what it does mean is the fight's over. There's no fight left. It only takes one to sin, but it does take two to quarrel. (laughs) It only takes one to do wrong, but it takes two to fight. So if we ever wonder, like, why is there so much conflict, so much quarreling, so much fighting in my life? Well, we just have to start here. Because James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. We have to ask ourselves, do I want to win or do I want grace? Do I want to prevail in this argument or do I want God's mercy? That's often the choice that he gives us. Okay, do you want to win this fight or do you want my grace? And what we do next will reveal what we really think. And if we keep fighting, well, that's evidence that I don't really want the grace of God. I just want to win. Isaiah 66, 6, but to this one I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Love that. God says, that's who I'll look to. That's why with Josiah, he's going to hear his prayer. Because he's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at God's word. So for all the grieving we might do about our world, about our government, about our marriages, about our children, about our parents, about our jobs, about our relationships. I wonder, can God really take us seriously if we don't take his word seriously? But to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, God says, 
I'm all ears. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus said, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And when we abide in him and his words abide in us, what we pray for is his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we abide in him and his words abide in us, then we're going to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. And God says, I always hear it. I'll always do it. I'll always respond and listen to that one who their posture of heart is defined by it. So pause here and just think for a moment, just how do you receive the word of God? Do you receive it humbly? Is the soil of your soul soft or hard? Or does it depend on the moment? Does it bring you low and then give you big thoughts of God? Or does it bring God low and give you big thoughts of yourself? Do you submit beneath the word of God or stand over it in judgment? It's always a fine line we walk. Or when we come to the word of God, are we under it? Or are we just analyzing it, judging it, measuring it? We'll parse every sentence and every verb and every word and then not do it. Or are we humble beneath the word of God? Soberly, do we receive it soberly? Does the word of God awaken you to the reality of sin and make you serious about life? Notice Josiah doesn't just go from there to just turn on the TV. It sobers him. It makes him serious about life. Do you receive it sorrowfully when you hear the word, does it grieve you about your sin? Do you read and and feel the sorrow and mourning over sin? Do you receive it repentantly that once grieved, does the word of God turn you from sin and to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his goal, his point? Do you receive it thankfully? After grieving your sin, are you thankful where you go, Lord, thank you for showing me. Thank you for helping me see. Thank you for using your word to break these bones, to bring me to a place of repentance, to be rightly related to you. Do you receive it eagerly? When you hear it, do you seek more of it? Does the word of God move you to want more and then to change? Is it that eager, that zealous? Do you receive it joyfully? Does the word of God fill you with gladness in God? I mean, why is Josiah going to now celebrate Passover and get the whole nation to celebrate Passover? I think because he's glad. He's restored to God and he's happy in God. Do you receive it worshipfully? Does the word of God provoke you to praise God? Because that's how Josiah is going to receive his word. Humbly, soberly, sorrowfully, repentantly, thankfully, eagerly, joyfully, worshipfully. So we want to pray, Lord, may we be a people that receive your word this way. That you would look to Delray Baptist Church because we're humble and contrite in spirit and we tremble at your word. And it's a kind of trembling that produces joy. A kind of trembling that produces worship. A kind of trembling that wants us eager to eat more. More of it. Now, despite this, the repentance and the reformations that Josiah is going to bring, they were not enough to satisfy the wrath of God. Which brings us to our last point, and that is the satisfaction of God. If we look back to chapter 22, verse 17, we hear God's initial statement about the hopelessness of the nation. Listen to what he says, chapter 22, verse 17, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Like a mountain of gasoline-soaked timber just sitting in a pile, he says, no, the match has gone to it. It has been set ablaze and there is none to quench it. 
we just consider all the wildfires that in recent months had been burning across northern California. Millions of acres at a time. Buildings. Isn't it amazing how fire can reduce buildings of stone to rubble if they're hot enough? People lost their lives in these fires. They were so big, they went so quick. If you see some of the pictures in the video, I mean flames taller than pine trees, hotter than a furnace, where it would show a tree that's you know, maybe 50 yards from the flames and just from the heat, it's set ablaze. Well, the fire of God's wrath burns infinitely hotter than that, infinitely longer, and will someday consume the whole world. You can imagine that wrath over the world. And it will not be quenched, he says. And after all the reforms Josiah brought to the nation, all his repentance, no king before or after him, God's wrath still isn't satisfied. Not even close. Chapter 23, verse 26. Still the Lord, after all this, did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I've removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I've chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I've said my name shall be there. Now the rest of the Acts of Josiah, all they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he's going to go out to war uninvited by God against Pharaoh and he's going to be struck down and he's going to die in verse 29. And according to 2 Chronicles 35, Jeremiah is going to lament Josiah's death. So the prophet Jeremiah is in the beginning years of his ministry at this stage and he's going to write a lament over the death of Jeremiah because everything after this is going to go downhill. We'll see that next week. There's no king like him in the history of Israel and Judah who turned so strongly back to the Lord and a nation back to the Lord and yet still his efforts were not enough. And I don't think that's a statement about the bitterness of God or the grumpiness of God or the unforgiving nature of God. It's just a statement about how holy he is, how perfect he is in his righteousness how severe and how serious and how infinite his wrath is. Because you may be here this morning and you haven't missed a church service in 14 years. It may be true of you. You haven't missed a morning reading the Bible in two decades. You grieve your sin. You've really tried to clean up your life. You don't lie or drink or chew and you don't run with girls who do. Right? That's the old saying. You give your money to the poor. You take care of widows. You may even recycle. You may have dogs and cats. You may have a restaurant down the hill and you put little bowls for water for animals out there. You don't let children in, but you'll let animals in. And maybe you you may take care of animals that well. You're willing to give up your body to be burned. You've been mistreated, perhaps even scorned for the name of Christ. It is not enough. Read every day of your life, every hour of every day. Do every good deed you could imagine. It won't be enough. The only way we could ever think God's justice is satisfied with our good works and his wrath removed by our pious deeds is if we've never really met him. And we don't really know him. We haven't really beheld his holiness on the pages of scripture because as soon as Josiah heard it, he knew we're in trouble. You just think about it. If you're a school teacher, are you satisfied with sloppy assignments from your students? Or if you're a coach, are you satisfied when players give half-hearted effort? Or you're a business owner or supervisor, are you satisfied when people come in late, leave early, and then steal from the company in between? Are you satisfied? If paying for a meal at a restaurant, do you give high praises and give big tips if there's maggots crawling around in the food? Are you satisfied? And so here we are as flawed sinners, and we have standards, (laughs) things by which we're satisfied. 
How much more a holy God who created the universe in perfection and who is righteous, does he not have standards? And a level of holiness that is without blemish, without flaw, that it's not just do a bunch of good deeds. No, it's no sin ever, not even in your heart, not even in your thoughts, not even in your attitudes. Every single second of every single day of every day of your life. So no, even with all this repentance and reading in the Bible and Reformation, he's still not satisfied. Hebrews 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10, 11, and every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. You just think, do, do we offer better sacrifices every day than the people of Israel? So it just has to make us wonder, how can anyone escape? How can anyone be saved? Or for Josiah, how does anyone go to the grave in peace? How does that work? Which gets us back to that question. How is it that Josiah can go to the grave in peace? Well, I think because God can defer judgment upon Josiah's sins and bring him to the grave in peace because there's another king that's going to come. A savior king. A king whose life and death will be so perfect, so pure, so holy, so without blemish that it will be pleasing to God and it will satisfy his wrath. And I think Josiah is looking to him because that's where the word of God points, right? Even as he would have kept reading in the law and even in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to say, God will raise up a prophet like me. Even in those books, there's word of this one that's going to be coming that's going to deal with sin. Listen to Paul in Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've just established that. And are justified, made righteous before him, declared righteous before him by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Not Josiah, God puts him forward. As a propitiation, meaning satisfaction by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins, meaning Josiah's sins. He's going to pass over them. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, meaning the time that Christ is going to come and live and die and be raised, so that he, meaning God, might be just meaning still holy, still righteous, still upholding of the law, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That God passed over the sins of Josiah and brought him to the grave in peace because Josiah, by faith, was looking to another king, hoping in another king, whom God would put forward as a propitiation, which means a satisfaction, a satisfaction of his justice, a satisfaction of his righteousness, a satisfaction of his wrath. That this fire that God the Father says will never be quenched, well, it will be absorbed in him. So that he may be just and the justifier of the one whose faith is in him. The one whose faith is in Jesus, who takes shelter in Jesus. All that wrath that then the Father pours out on Christ, on the cross, because we're in him, it's satisfied in our place. So Josiah was not trusting in his repentance or all the reforms he brought to the nation. Now those came as a result of God's work in him. <laughs> he was trusting in God's grace and provision of righteousness on his behalf, which is why he turned to God so strongly. <laughs> which is why his life was so miraculously transformed, which is why he called everyone together to hear the words of this law, not so that you would just feel guilty and ashamed and try to clean your life up, but so that you would feel the weight and the guilt of your sin and be led to the one that the scripture points to. It was Jesus Christ. And so his reforms did not bring about his salvation. His reforms were the result of his salvation. His heart was humbled beneath the word of God, and brought to faith in God because God gave him that heart. So his joy was in the word of God as an effect of God's grace, not to earn God's grace. Because you notice God's already promised him peace. 
You won't see this wrath that's coming. And yet still he changes. Still he goes back to it and back to it and back to it. Still he reads it. Still he declares it. Because he knew grace isn't earned. It's given as a gift. But joy in the word of God is an evidence. It's a result. It is important. So what it means is being scholars of the Bible can't save us. We could go up to heaven and face God and quote the whole Bible to him. It won't save us. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew the word of God better than we do. They had it memorized. And yet it was of no profit to them because their hearts were not softened by grace and trusting in the Savior so that when the Savior comes, they didn't even recognize him. Listen to how Jesus put it in John chapter 5 as he's speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. So so you read them, you study them, you're in them because you know in God's word there's eternal life. And Jesus didn't say, but there isn't. No, he says, no, there is. It's just not what you think. It's not you read and study the law and then you try to keep it in your own strength and because of that, you get eternal life. No, it's these that lead you to me. And then Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life and not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. That's how he knew they didn't have the love of God in them. They didn't receive Jesus. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. But how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I think that's what God helped Josiah see. He's reading Moses, and he's crushed under the weight of his sin before the law of Moses. But then he doesn't stop there. That leads him to see the one that Moses wrote about, Jesus. So it brings us to another question. To whom do you look for your salvation? Your law-keeping or Christ's law-keeping? Your works or Christ's works? Your reading scripture or Christ fulfilling scripture? Those are different things. Your sacrifice to pay for your sins or Christ's sacrifice to pay for your sins? Your righteous response to God's word or Christ's righteous response to God's word? Which one do we want to boast in? When we stand before him and we say, Lord, I, what I boast in is the fact that Jesus kept your law. I boast in the fact that he came and fulfilled your will. I boast in his righteous law-keeping, and even more in the fact that he fulfills the very word that you have spoken. So I delight in it, and I read it, and I soak in it because it declares him, and it reveals you, and it pleases you to hear your words and to believe. So we should search the scriptures, because in them is eternal life, because they bear witness to Jesus Christ in whom is the life. And so this is no ordinary book. These are no ordinary words. And when the Spirit of God illumines us to them, they show us the ugliness of our sin. They show us the greatness of the wrath on sinners. And then they show us the glory of Christ. And they make him irresistible to our souls which is why to read them and to not see and behold the glory of Christ is to miss the point because when the spirit is so working in the heart to illumine us to the word Jesus is all over it his life, his death, his resurrection God putting him forward as a satisfaction for his wrath a satisfaction for his righteousness and we keep going back to the word every day That when we believe, when we have faith, when God takes us as his own, 
we keep going back to the word because it's what declares the message of our salvation and we never grow tired of it. We keep reading and studying and believing and obeying and feasting upon scripture because as Moses said, it is our life. It's our food. It's light to our path. It keeps showing us our sin. It keeps reminding us of our Savior. It keeps showing us the benefits. You know, as the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any of his benefits. Or even forget not all his benefits. So we just keep going to the word to see what are these benefits I'm to never forget. So we keep going to the word because it makes our hope firmly planted in him. We keep going to the word because it keeps stirring our joy in him. We keep going to the word because they are our counselors. We keep going to the word because it shows us where we're going, where this is leading to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords, who is the satisfaction of God's wrath. We keep reading so that we don't stop at Josiah but the one that he anticipated, the one he looked to, the one who sits enthroned in heaven, the one who will receive us into glory there, the one with whom we will reign forever. Let's pray. Father, we glory in these truths and in these promises. And as we've prepared to receive the Lord's Supper, uh, we give glory to Christ. We thank you for your word. They are words of life. We thank you for your word that in them there is everlasting life. We thank you for your word because they testify about him, about Jesus, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Lord, the King of kings who satisfies your wrath on our behalf who satisfies your righteousness in our place. So help us to see him, glory in him, give praise to him, that all who are here in this room would leave believing, not unbelieving, beholding Christ, not blind to Christ, worshiping Christ, not ignoring Christ. To you be the glory and the honor and praise forever. Amen.